0: Welcome to Sparks, the 5:38 podcast where we talk about big ideas in science and specifically big ideas from science books that we have recently read. I am Maggie Kurth-Baker, senior science reporter. This month, we are reading The Art of Risk, Kate Suckel's new book about the science of decision making and how individuals value risk and risk taking in their own lives. Earlier, I sat down with my fellow science writers Anna Maria berry Jester and Christy Ashwanden, and our editor Blythe Terrell, and we talked about this book as a roundtable. So, if you haven't already listened to that episode, you should. Today, though, I am chatting with the book's author, Kate Sukel herself, to find out a little bit more about the story behind the book and the story behind the science that the book is about. Kate, welcome to Sparks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to start out by talking about you because this book really grew out of your own personal life. Uh, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the circumstances that led to your decision to write this book?
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I was actually just researching a a story about birth control this week, and one of the researchers said, you know, so much of research is me-search. And I think that's a (laughs) lot of where these ideas come from for me as well. Um, if you had asked my, my mother, uh, who could keep you on the phone probably for about three hours, telling you about all my most painful exploits, um, I've always been a bit of a risk taker. I took a very unconventional path, and I really thought that that was kind of the key to my success, such that it was. But I hit 40. I had gotten divorced. I had moved back to the States from Europe. I was in this little suburban, you know, s- single-level home and got a mortgage and a station wagon, and all of a sudden I wasn't taking any risks anymore. Um, And it kind of made me wonder if risk had been this big part of of why I had felt like I had had a successful life before, why had it gone away? And then how could I get it back? And how could I get it back in a way where, you know, I wasn't losing my shirt or forgetting to pay my mortgage or, um, you know, basically risking too much? I wanted to be smarter about it. And, and so that sort of led me not only into the science, but then also I wanted to talk to real world risk takers to see where science, you know, actually intersected with the real world, um, and and really sort of you know challenged the idea of, of what risk is, and is it really as dangerous and as um, negative as as we seem to talk about it for the most part.
0: And there was kind of a decision about what to do about a relationship in there, also, right? Yeah. And, and I asked this because we're so curious whether you're still married. <laughs> I
1: am still married. Yeah, I think the pool, the, the final people in the pool for our upcoming divorce. Uh, I think they have until four and a half years. But uh, <laughs> nope, still married.
0: So I wondered. One of the things that I came away from this book wondering, um, and that seemed to kind of be like a central question of the research. Is whether risk is a trait, like you kind of described yourself as a risk taker who lost their mojo, or is risk a response to conditions that can vary over an individual's life or even like from situation to situation? And I sort of think of risk as like the latter, but it, it seemed like a lot of the research is thinking of it as a trait.
1: You know, I, I think that, you know, certainly in society, we think about it as a trait. We talk about people all the time. Oh, he's a risk taker. She's a risk taker. We talk about it as if it's a personality trait. And in fact, if you go back to a lot of the social psychological research that was done on impulsive behavior and and sort of um, sensation-seeking behavior, they also talk about it like a personality trait. Um so I, I'm not sure how much of that is society and how much is science. Of course, the two overlap a lot more than, than we often admit um, in the science writing world. Um, but when I really started this book, um, I had just finished reading The Sports Gene. I, I'd been looking at a lot of stuff. I really did think that maybe there was something different. Um, about hmm. the biological makeup of people who seem to be able to take these big risks in, in stride, um, whether it be our extreme sports heroes or somebody like Steve Jobs um, or even professional you know uh, sports hero in the NFL. Um, maybe there's just something a little bit different about them. And and certainly I think I was really colored by the the ideas that were put forth in the sports gene. But the more that I looked into it and the more that I looked at the way that these things were defined, it really didn't come down to conditions. Because, of course, hmm. we, we all hear these stories about you know that little old lady that uh, you know never ventured out of her house until there was a car accident on the road in front of her, and then she somehow had this superhuman feat of strength to rescue the four kids and the puppy out of the back seat. Um, it does seem to be, you know, a cognitive process. Um, and it's not limited to these big things, jumping out of airplanes, billion dollar business deals, um, you know, that sort of thing. It really is a cognitive process that our brain has to deal with each and every day with almost, well, in fact, I will say every decision that we make. Um, and, and that's a, a, in some ways a much more interesting way to look at it because it means we all have the ability to take risk in stride. Um, and also to really understand why our brains sort of take the the shortcuts that it does that often lead us astray when we are dealing with uncertainty.
0: You know, throughout this book, you're talking to these average people who sort of have their own risk tolerance and their own lives. And I I was really curious about how you found them, because you have these characters, you know, these these aren't famous people. These aren't um, even necessarily people with really unique situations. I mean you're talking to like an engineer who's really boring but also likes to gamble. You have a teenager who has this secret from his parents life of risky business. Mm-hmm. How did you reach out and find these people?
1: Some of them are, you know, friends and family. Some are friends of friends. Um, And some people, you know, were people that I had interviewed or or admired from before. Um, Hmm. You know, so David Baskin, who was a neurosurgeon, I had actually interviewed him for a story about the kind of risky surgeries he does um, a number of years ago. And, you know, we talked quite a bit afterward. And a lot of the things that he said really stuck with me. So I I wanted to talk to him because – You know, this whole idea of taking risk for ourselves, you know, what happens when when you have somebody's skull opened up in front of you and you're mucking about in their brain to remove a tumor that every other doctor... Uh, that they've seen is set is impossible to remove how how do you make that leap um andy frankenberger i I actually knew him when I was a teenager, and it, you know we haven 't kept in great touch, but seeing you know him go from you know this wall Street guy to a professional poker player, and not only that a two time world series of poker champion has been really interesting to see from afar hmm. um and then Steph Davis, I, I actually uh, – I I think of her as famous, at least in the extreme sports world, because she's – she really is a badass and um, in a lot of ways a female role model because she's usually um, so often the only woman that is kind of representing – um, what are some really risky sports? And in fact,
0: and, and this is the woman that that base jumped after her husband died. Yeah, she
1: is a free solo climber and a base jumper. She is one of the first women who free soloed um, a few peaks in Yosemite. She's she's was married to Dean Potter first, who actually just died, and she was the only woman when Cliff Bar decided to part ways uh, on sponsorships. I guess about a year or two ago. Um, With about eight athletes, she was the only woman that they parted ways with saying that her behavior was too risky.
0: I think one of the things that was most interesting to me about this book was sort of the way that it made me think critically about the way that science is done, because there is so much research that you're sort of talking about where the way that the questions are being asked or the way that the studies are being set up totally frames what kinds of answers you're getting and one of the things that really sort of stood out to me was you know throughout this book we're sort of asking why don't people make the optimal choice why don't people behave rationally why is this so hard and that got me wondering a little bit about like history and human nature because mm-hmm. you know did you ever come across when we started thinking that behaving rationally was what we should be doing. And it's a failure to deviate from that. You know, like, was this always what people thought? Or is that something that's kind of grown as a part of sort of the adoption of science as part of a cultural norm in the West?
1: You know, I, I think thinking rationally and thinking optimally, I mean, you can go back to Aristotle and Plato, and I, I think mm. it sort of comes back to how do you, um, you know, become do right by yourself, but then also exist within the confines of civilization and a community. And so a lot of these ideas that we have about thinking rationally and acting optimally have to really sort of balance out two competing things, which are getting the best things for yourself, but then also really not pissing off your neighbors and, you know, getting chased out with pitchforks. Um, So I think that this is something that People have been thinking about for a long time, however, you know what is optimal, what is rational uh, that changes and and certainly, if you go back to john nash 's work um, you know in game theory, you know he really sort of challenged ideas about how we operate, how humans operate uh, in groups versus alone, and you know what is optimal uh, and then, uh, certainly, you look at um, you know Kahneman and Tversky's work, and um, Daniel Kahneman's famous, very famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, he really challenged the idea that that we think rationally. Um, we're, we're, of course, we're often after the fact trying to justify decisions that we've made, um, and we'll we'll try to come up with the most rational uh, explanation for something we did or didn't do. I, I think these definitions definitely change. Um, I think for me, one of the most fascinating things about looking at risk is that if you pull 10 people off the street and ask them what it is, they're going to give you slightly different answers. And in fact, even the scientists I spoke with would say, well, within the context of these experiments I'm doing, risk is a, but I think if we're talking about everyday life, it's actually more like this. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. Nine out of 10 people will define differently. And it sounds like, you know, from my research, it seems like nine out of 10 scientists will as well.
0: You, you said something about like how the, the way that people get funding affects what we know about risk. Right. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit a bit more about that. Like, are there some things that we know a lot about the science of risk about because that's the easiest stuff to fund? And like, what are the questions that people are having trouble getting funded?
1: I think, you know, people are really interested in understanding why, you know, particularly teenagers engage in what they consider stupid or foolish behaviors. Why do they drive too fast? Why do they drink too much? Why are they having sex when, you know, we've been spending all this money on sex education? Why are they getting pregnant? Why are they dropping out of school? So, you know, there's certainly been a ton of epidemiological research there because, of course, you know, we want our kids to grow up and, and not only survive, but thrive. Um, similarly with diseases, a lot of the stuff that we understand about risk, at least early studies, you know, came from our understanding that, People with certain kinds of head injuries tend to act in really irrational manners. They tend to be more impulsive. Uh, They tend to, you know, not think things through. Um, And we've sort of said that that's risky behavior. But as I said, I think the newer research is really sort of drawing a line between risky and impulsive. You know, Parkinson's disease and, again, the addition of dopamine, that's been really interesting field just to understand how dopamine and you know everyone wants to call it the pleasure chemical or a reward chemical, but of course we're learning it's more of a learning chemical. It's hmm. there and it, it interacts with all manner of, of other neurochemicals to help us learn things and to help us build our, our skills and predict what's happening next in the world. Um, but you know, thanks to patients who have Parkinson's or schizophrenia, and we either see you know gluts of dopamine or lacks of dopamine, you know we see changes in behavior, and that including decision-making. And in fact, if you go back to um, early treatises on Parkinson's disease, you'll see that before we even talked about it in term, or before doctors talked about it in terms of motor deficits, they talked about it in terms of a decision-making uh, deficits. Hmm. So I find that really interesting. We, especially uh, in the United States, and especially right now in, um, you know, the era of the first act, you know, we want science to help us understand Uh, you know, how to age gracefully and with our mental faculties intact. We like uh, things that go after and and will provide uh, therapies, if not outright cures for diseases. Um, And, you know, we, of course, want our children to be healthy, happy, and, uh, you know, to reach their full potential and all become the little Rhodes Scholars that we all know that they can be. Um, And so those things tend to get funded. And, yes, you know, scientists are interested in risk from other respects, um, you know, again, the neuroeconomic stuff is also really important um, because, uh, you know, how people trade stocks, how people make these decisions, you know, the, the, that can have really vast implications for not only the United States economy, but the world economy. Um, so understanding those behaviors is, is important as well. But more and more, it's hard to get funding for studies you know, that are not basically, you know, don't say in the first part, you know, this will lead to new treatments for cancer.
2: We'll get back to Maggie's conversation with Kate Suckel in a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best ingredients from their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals and it's easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step guide, easy-to-follow recipe card, and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com point. That's blueapron.com point. Okay, back to the show, and here is Maggie.
0: I noticed that throughout this book, there are a lot of tensions between kind of almost contradictory ideas in the science. Mm -hmm. And like one of those things kind of pertains a lot to the genetics research, where you have these chapters where you're talking about... These genes that seem to be engaged in decision making and risk tolerance, but then you're also saying, you know, okay, wait, you know, we shouldn't get too excited. Genetics isn't that simple. There's not a risk gene, and you have like this example of dopamine as being this thing that when we sort of first started studying it, everybody got all excited about the love chemical, and you know, Mm -hmm. and it, our understanding of what it is has changed drastically as we've studied it more. And I'm curious, like, how you balance that kind of tension as a writer and and also how the scientists balance that kind of tension. Because, you know, their research depends on them saying this gene is involved, but they're also simultaneously trying to say, but like, it's not risk gene
1: right and it's tough because you know then how can they get more interest in it because nobody except you know hardcore science geeks wanted to sit there and listen to how dopamine you know interacts with you know estrogen and oxytocin and uh you know glutamate and all these other things to have this really weird cascade of events and it totally depends on whether you're doing a or b or c um but of course that's how much life is i think for scientists you know when you are schooled in the scientific method you you understand that it's 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 teensy steps, right you're taking baby steps to to answer a bigger question you're trying to answer or at least get you know null answers for little questions along the way you understand that small steps are eventually going to get you there and so i don't know that the tension is necessarily um, as great on them for that although we are seeing you know thanks to the internet and and these databases of um, participant data either brain scans or um you know uh, sequencing genetic sequencing they're sharing that data And they're sharing ideas to try to get a better idea of what's going on. And so these large-scale consortiums are really trying to make sense of what is often a lot of disparate and contradictory data. And I, I think that's great. As the science writer, you know, that's the tricky part. Everybody loved, um, you know, I, and I don't want to pick on the writer at all because it, it was a great, great story about the warrior versus the warrior gene. So, warrior right. is W A R R I O R versus W O R R I E R and talked about anxiety and the role um, that certain genes play in that. And you know what? It was a great story that talked about how, you know, this one gene really can, you know, change the algorithm that determines behavior. And I think that's really interesting. But in your 900-word story, how do you get into all the caveats? How do you say that this gene doesn't work alone? There is not a warrior gene. There is a gene that codes for a small protein that is actually expressed all over the body. Not only is it expressed all over the body, but we have this epigenetic programming that was probably laid down not, you know, just by your parents, but potentially your grandparents and great-grandparents, you know, that helps tell that gene when, where, and how much of that protein to express. It, it's, it's hard. Um, and it's a challenge, I think, for all science writers right now to, to create the story that is engaging, to help lay readers understand why this stuff is so important, but then to also, you know, sort of express just how complex it all is.
0: What is the risk of people thinking there's a risk gene?
1: I think the risk of people thinking there's a risk gene is that they want to justify bad behavior. Oh, I, I couldn't help cheating on you, honey. I have the risk gene. Oh, hmm. yeah, I keep quitting my job, but, you know, I have the risk gene. Um, and I think, you know, on the other side of that, because certainly the the opposite of risk, when people are, are too risk averse, what we see are anxiety disorders. And, of course, you know, it's an extreme, but if people are telling themselves, I, I just don't have the genetic makeup to take risks, you know, that also sort of gives them, you know, justification Uh, you know, a rationalization to uh, stay in their home, never leave.
0: Because I was also thinking about it, like, in terms of what you're talking about, like, the data sharing. I mean, this gets into, like, sci-fi, but like, what would you do if you're dating somebody and you can look up and see, oh, they have this risk gene? <laughs> you know, like, how does that change your perception of other human beings over something that is much more complex than just a gene?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question, because uh, a few weeks ago I was actually asked whether or not, you know, we should put our mental health status on dating profiles.
0: And, oh, interesting.
1: And uh, you know, I, I found myself a little bit stymied by the question because, on one hand, you know, I I think it's great because it reduces stigma and and people can sort of, you know, be open what their issues are. But then I thought, gosh, you know, as it is when I read a dating profile, and I'm not dating anymore, but you know, my <laughs> friends will will send them. And, and when I was dating, you know. I, I see someone who uses poor grammar or puts a apostrophe for every plural word, and I think, I already have a lot of preconceived notions about you. Um, how many more would I add knowing your, your private mental health status? And I think that's when it gets kind of interesting for genetics as well.
0: So kind of thinking about that sort of tendency that we as humans have to kind of get this biological essentialism as being this uh, – really engaging way to talk about behavior, right? And that really engaging and misleading way to talk about behavior. There was one passage that really struck out to me when you're talking about gender and risk. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a a woman named, I'm probably mispronouncing this, paula Sapienza Mm -hmm. um, at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. And what you write is that she wondered why women seemed more risk-averse in economics, that um, you know, she noticed only a small percentage of female MBA students from Kellogg, which is a top tier business school, went on to higher risk and higher profit financial careers after graduation. And that was something that irked her. Why were so many smart, capable women purposely avoiding these kind of go-getter jobs? And she wondered if testosterone was involved. And I just like I, I have to say I like set the book down and started screaming at Paula. <laughs> like that. What about all of the stuff about? gender discrimination Mm -hmm. and about why women drop out of the pipeline. Like, I don't understand why you would look at that problem and think, oh, it's probably because of testosterone levels. Like, I'm so curious about, like, how, how did you approach talking to her about that? Was that a question you had as well?
1: For that study, I think a lot of those things, wondering if testosterone was involved, was because... All of the play, that previous work looking at men and testosterone in the finance fields worked. So, you know, could mm-hmm. that be one factor? And a lot of times, you know, when these studies are done, they're looking at multiple factors because they use the same data set as um, the the previous one that looked at testosterone in, in uh, I'm sorry, they used a new data set, but they used the same uh, experimental paradigm as the one that had looked at males before. Um, so I think that was probably, uh, you know, what they were thinking at the time. Um, and, of course, we learn more and more that testosterone is not a boy chemical. You know, women have plenty of testosterone as well. And and men, I'm sure this may come as a surprise to you, but you have plenty of estrogen as well. Um, these two, you know, sex steroids are very, very similar. Now, there have been tons of studies that have looked at why women you know don't take these kinds of jobs, what's going on you know and again, you get back to this decision making thing whether when women choose to do it is it are they rationalizing it after the fact? not to say that these aren't issues, but is there a piece of biology that we may be missing? So I mm. think it's actually good to kind of look at these things from from both sides and maybe there is something in our biological makeup that makes us um, you know, better able to deal with those kind of stressors, better able to handle those kind of high-risk decisions than than other people. And maybe testosterone was one way to do that.
0: One of the other things you brought up in that discussion about gender and risk was what gets defined as risky and how the fact that We have kind of come at this from the idea scientifically that men are bigger risk takers because testosterone has kind of shaped what we think of as risky behaviors and thus shaped what the outcomes are. And I was thinking about that with that job thing, too, because, you know, you're talking about these high-powered MBA jobs that tend to have a lot of men in them. And, of course, those are high-risk, high-reward jobs, But then you also think about, like, something like nursing, which is predominantly (laughs) female and which is a super high risk, high reward in terms of, you know, physical damage to yourself, emotional Mm -hmm. health, you know, like all of these things. And we never think of that as, like, that never gets talked about as being, like, a high risk job or birth as being, (laughs) like, a high risk thing. Yes, Um, Because this seems like a really good example to me of how society shapes the way that science asks questions. And then science gets these answers that tell society, this is how it operates without oh, acknowledging yeah, all the, the bias. The yeah. Bias no, went it's totally to it. yeah.
1: there. And, you know, you know what you were talking about earlier, you know, with the Sapienza study, you know, why women don't take these jobs. What if these women want to have a family? I mean, they're smart enough to already know that if they're planning to, you know, have babies, they're going to have to take time off work that might be held against them. You know, I mean, these are things that that you kind of have to think about that men don't because you know, society kind of puts this idea that that women are going to handle all of that. Um but yeah, you're right. Just you know, basic things, childbirth. I mean, it, it, maternal mortality is is still a thing. Um And, you know, thanks to a lot of healthcare cuts in Texas, we're seeing it rising dramatically. Right. Uh, You know, people always get annoyed because they ask me what I, you know, a lot of times in interviews, what I think the biggest risk I've ever taken. And I guess they're expecting me to talk about, you know, swimming with hammerhead sharks or jumping out of a plane. But I always say having children. I am expected to shape these young little kids into thoughtful, capable adults. And it is scary because, uh, you know, it's not just it's controlling the world, whatever else. And people kind of chafe at that answer, but nothing has ever terrified me more.
0: I'm curious how you came away from this book thinking about this field of research. You know, did your perspective on it change from before you wrote the book to after? And in particular, is this field of research offering the kind of answers that you were hoping it could offer you when you went into writing this?
1: Yes and no. Um, So I think on one hand, um, you know, the idea that risk-taking is not a personality trait, that it's actually a cognitive process was really a good thing for me because it made me rethink uh, why I was saying no so often. And um, as much as these days we throw around mindful to the point where it's become almost a meaningless buzzword... You know, we're learning more and more, especially in terms of decision making, in terms of skill building, why self-awareness is so important. Um, And I know this is, you know, sort of a very folk neuroscience-y analogy, but, you know, Mark Rakel once told me that the brain is in the prediction business. And I think about that a lot because if we were to distill down what the brain does to one thing – it's trying to figure out what's coming at you and, you know, coming at you next and trying to give you the tools to deal with it so that you can survive and hopefully thrive. But because the brain is such an expensive, you know, organ to run, it it, it has to try to cut down on resources wherever it can. And so when you sort of understand why it's filling in the blanks the way that it does, I think that that's more valuable in understanding why you make decisions. Um, but you know, I I would like to see more rigorous science just on the behavior itself, not in terms yeah. of just a diagnosis. I'd like to see a lot of challenges to inherent biases we have about women in risk-taking because I, I have to tell you, and, and I know that I come from a sort of weird cohort, but the women I know are badasses, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. they're architects and, you know, doing great things at JPL or so they they really break this idea of what a woman is supposed to be. And I don't think they're the only ones. So maybe we need to think about that a little bit more. And I I guess I'd also like to see a more rigorous approach to our definitions. We keep, even the scientists keep throwing around, you know, words like risk and and impulsive behavior, and it's becoming more and more clear that it's not the same thing. Um, And if we make everything about impulsive behavior, a gamble, so to speak. Hmm. Um, You know, we can't really understand all the ways where risk works in our favor. And you know what, quite often it does.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for this. This has been a really interesting conversation. And I, I feel like I say, like, this has been an interesting book for me for thinking critically about science. And I hope it is for our readers as well.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: You have been listening to Sparks, 538's podcast about big ideas in science. We were speaking with Kate Sukel, who wrote a book called The Art of Risk. Next month on Sparks, we will be doing a special Thanksgiving feast edition where we are reading J. Kenji Lopez-Alt's The Food Lab and making food out of The Food Lab and testing our own ideas about the science of food and what the results turn out to be. So if you want to know what the best steak is, according to the science staff at Five Thirty Eight, you should tune in next month.